Welcome to Season 3, Episode 19 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Bruce Wagner. Bruce is a writer. His most recent novel, Raw, American Master, the oral biography of Roger Orr, is out now from Arcade Press. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Thank you, Ben. Pleasure to be here. How's life over there in LA? It's all right. It's been a cold winter for us. When I say cold, I mean in the 60s. So um, people are are uh, in a panic. You've written screenplays for TV and film. You've written numerous novels. How does a boy from Wisconsin end up in Hollywood as a writer? Well, I grew up in um, in Los Angeles, in Beverly Hills. My father, at that time, before he transitioned, uh, not gender, he transitioned from show business to finance, um, was producing television shows, and he had a background in radio. So I went to school with a lot of uh, the children of celebrities. We lived um, a few houses down from an old movie star named Broderick Crawford. So that world of of fame and uh, the strangeness that attends it became quite familiar to me. Um, I had a, a, a series of of jobs. Uh, I dropped out of Beverly Hills High School. I was book obsessed. I worked in bookstores, stole books, thousands of dollars worth of books, and had a library at home of these books that were like talismans for me. I, I was worshipful of them and probably wouldn't have admitted at the time um, of wanting uh, were needing to write books, but certainly did fantasize about having volumes of my own that could join these other books on the shelf. But before I I began to actively write, to write for money, I had a, a number of jobs. I drove an ambulance. Um, I was a practical nurse before that. I then um, was a limousine driver and and sold um, tone and uh, and ink for cartridges for printing uh, in a boiler room situation, half legal. And I met a woman who um, was uh, in the business marginally, and through some of her connections, I began to write screenplays with her, and actually wrote a screenplay that was never uh, released, uh, made into a film, produced by Robert Stigwood, a $5 million movie that people had high hopes for. But the director was um, impaired, and that uh, damaged any chance of a film being made that was viable uh, in the marketplace. Um, so that was a, a good baptism for me. Um, I think had that movie been released and and became a financial success it would have been a way of sealing my own death my excess or misadventure <clears throat> so 
that put a kind of um, governor on on my uh, the speed with which I was writing and moving through Hollywood. Um, I had always wanted to write prose, so this was kind of a a diversion for me, um, unlikely. And ultimately, um, in my very late twenties, I began to write short stories that were inspired by F. Scott Fitzgerald's book, The Pat Hobby Stories. My pseudonym um, was Bud Wiggins, so mine, my book was called Force Majeure, the, the Bud Wiggins Stories, and they were initially typed uh, short stories about a drug-addicted screenwriter who was a failure in the business and had been reduced to driving limousines to make ends meet, which was not far from the truth. I wasn't um, uh, broke, but I certainly was deeply uh, spiritually depressed after my um, my hackdom. You know, I've been writing screenplays twice a year for things that I absolutely felt disconnected from and 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 cared not for. Um, so uh, those stories, with the encouragement of friends and people that read them. Um, I wound up uh, desktop publishing with a colleague or a friend of mine who knew how to do that. And we published a thousand copies and sold them out of a local bookstore, a famous bookstore called Book Soup here in West Hollywood. And from then on, um, somehow they were reviewed and acknowledged. And that was where I got my first book deal. I think it was with Random House to novelize those short stories, which I did, and that was my first novel, Force Majeure. I guess with that prose writing, like it sounds like that that's where you see yourself and you've always seen yourself. Is that something that you've just always wanted to do? Always. Yeah, I mean, I've been writing probably since I was 10 or 11. My books, um, my short stories were imitative of O. Henry and Bret Hart and and Ray Bradbury, you know, things that a younger person uh, um, would read. And um, I, I, I struggled because the idea of writing a full-length book was non-existent. It was something I simply thought was impossible. And the schools encourage such notions of impossibility because they, they say you, you can study these and comment on these and write little papers about these books, little papers that we will mark up and ultimately diminish um, any any original thought from. And I, you, but you simply cannot ever write something. Um, that's the hidden message. Mm. Um, and I think it was when I I was reading Kafka whose uh, short stories, of course, are mysterious and and uh, astonishing and perfect in their way. And I was reading the prose poems of Franz Kafka, a, a book, and I was shocked that, that such a thing could exist as a prose poem. So that kind of got me off the hook of, um, of structure. Even though I, I really do operate from a place of structure. I often 
know how a book will end. I certainly know how books begin. Um, uh, it's a, a, a bit diagrammatic for me, uh, writing. But once you embrace the, the so-called formula of that, you are uh, set free. So I was set free by simply knowing that Franz Kafka, who'd written these towering novels that I could, couldn't uh, imagine writing, I couldn't even imagine reading in them, um, I thought, well, he not only can write a short story, but he can write a prose poem that is set free from any rules. Um, and this is what I aspire to be a prose poet, essentially which I hope I am to this day. Um, and then it was an evolution. You know, um, you, you try, you try every day or every week or every month, and then you uh, acquire a kind of a mastery. You know, I think it's, it's like anything else. Um, you, you can acquire a mastery as a carpenter, but that doesn't mean you're going to, to make a beautiful table or cabinet. So those things are innate and, and, and mysterious. We don't know where they come from, but they can't be taught. So I felt fortunate um, that I began to explore hidden areas of my myself, my artistic self, let's say, um, where I, I felt that a tuning fork had been struck and that I was in the game somehow. You know? um, so that's that was my my evolution as a writer. And then um, I found that it was, it was a reflexive thing for me to connect tissue. In other words, um, what might begin as a, a passage that was poetic would be rigorously connected to something that preceded it or followed. So these were part of my natural gifts. Um, so that's, that's really, uh, in short, um, or maybe in length, uh, how I went about it, you know. Brilliant. I want to ask you briefly about your time screenwriting and producing. Can you give us a couple of the highlights of projects you worked on? Well, I had written a, um, a, uh, a screenplay for the, that would be unproducible and it was called They Sleep by Night. And somehow, uh, Wes Craven saw that script. I have no idea how. Uh, it might have been given in by another director named Paul Bartell, who I work with. And Wes liked the script so much, even though it was unproducible, that he asked me to write A Nightmare on Elm Street with him. Um, so we wrote the third one together, Dream Warriors. Um, uh, another instance was um, Paul Bartell asking me to write a script for him, um, loosely based on Spiles of a Summer Night or A Little Night Music. And uh, I wrote scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills. So that was, um, I think, the first time, you know, I, I, the chronology now escapes me, which came first, but um, to, to be writing for a a franchise was interesting for me. And it was also interesting because we had complete freedom. Um, Wes had done the first Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, and uh, had nothing to do with the second one. And they kind of came back to him with their hat in hand to do the third one. 
And I was um, thrilled that he asked me at all. And we had carte blanche. We could do what we wished. Maps to the Stars, which is um, a script that, that David Cronenberg uh, directed uh, in 2014, was another kind of dream uh, project for me. And I'm, I don't mean dream as far as aspirations. It was as if written in a dream, a fever dream. And it was never meant really to be made into a film. It was something that I was pouring my, my um, almost surreal frustrations into. It was a, a movie about uh, the business kind of uh, the, it was a, a very dark, fiery, um, operatic look at the inner soul, let's say, of Bud Wiggins, that protagonist I'd created. And I had written it 20 years before uh, I showed it to David. And David ultimately made it um, without care uh, because David is um, an iconoclast that, that can be uh, given no direction by um, the money makers. He just doesn't care about that sort of thing. So those are things that stand out in my head um, as uh, unusual experiences. Some of those, you know, the Craven and the the class struggle experiences were simply you're beaten down so much in this business uh, as a, a screenwriter when one is beginning that to suddenly have people um, uh, give you some kind of um, go-ahead uh, and to support you in that way is means a lot. And then to have um, a genius like uh, David Cronenberg translate something that it was written as if in a dream journal was even more um, unlikely and shocking and and miraculous and thrilling for me. So um, the the screenplays I really do consider myself a screenplay uh, uh, writer. Um, it's just they're so completely different writing a novel and a screenplay. A screenplay, a good one. I mean, Coppola's famous quote is, "You can." Uh, you know, if you you can't write a screenplay in 10 days, throw it out. You can write a great screenplay in a week. Um, and then, of course, it's a collaborative medium. You have to give, give it away and and pray for the best. A novel, you, you of course, cannot write in a week. You can, um, at fever pitch, unless you're Jack Kerouac, you can write something in six months. But even that, the end result of that six months, you'll spend another year revising. So it's a year and a half long process at minimum and requires a, um, a focus that, uh, that script writing cannot and will never approach. Let's move on to Raw. Um, it's an oral biography of Roger Orr, as told by his friends and family and a huge class of celebrities spanning over 70 years. Roll was a Hollywood legend. He was a singer, an actor, a writer, a comedian, a director. When I was speaking to you about this interview, I almost felt like doing it as nonfiction because it just felt so real to me reading it. It's an extraordinary story. And one of the books, the only books I've read recently that I really didn't want to end 
I feel like there's plot points I don't want to give away, but without giving too much away, do you want to tell us about who Roger Orr is and what inspired you to write this book as an oral biography? Well, um, I was always um, an enormous fan of the genre of oral history. And um, the the books that, that come to mind and are known uh, by by a lot of people are the famous um, oral histories of Edie Sedgwick, the uh, Warhol collaborator on Capote, uh, George Plimpton's book. There are also oral histories uh, about film directors, Robert Altman and, and Mike Nichols come to mind. The thing about oral histories is they're eminently readable. Um, people dip in to them and um, you can spend a, a, a week being fully entertained by the, the gossip and the darkness of oral histories. A few years ago, um, many years ago, I became quite en enthralled by the Russian writer Svetlana Alexievich, who wrote the book, The Oral History of Chernobyl, and many books um, about war in Russia. And these books were like literature. They um, kicked you in the gut. Um, they were so deeply and savagely emotional that I, I would literally have to put the book down every two or three pages. Um, she, ironically, won the Nobel Prize for Literature a few years ago. So there you see already emerging of the, of the real, the so-called real, and the so-called fictional. Um, I was very pleased and thought it quite poetic justice that she won her award for historical oral histories. Um, under the aegis of literature uh, was remarkable to me. So I, I decided uh, a while ago that I was going to write a book about an imaginary historical figure, someone I felt would be a towering figure along the lines of Orson Welles. Um, I heightened and exaggerated uh, Roger Orr. He's, he's not only a film director and an actor like Welles was, but he is a, a, a renowned sculpture, uh, sculptor working under a pseudonym. He's even a dermatologist. And when he was very, very young, he did uh, a series of underground comedy tapes that are studied to this day by people like uh, Dave Chappelle uh, and, and others. So I, I wanted to have fun with it, but my challenge was how much fun. And so I, I, I began to wrestle with two options. One was to write a book that was a little bit on the light side, that was something you might find in Shouts and Murmurs in The New Yorker, uh, but a longer version, of course, of one of those one-page pieces, or to write a full-blown uh, um, biography. And I chose the latter. Um, and and it's more than an oral history uh, or biography. It is a full-blown, full-dressed novel. And I never wanted uh, people to dip into it, you know, um, because you don't dip into a novel. Uh, but it's presented in that form like an epistolary novel would be of letters. This is of voices. And it was, it was 
was diff very difficult for me to write, obviously, because there are 400 voices in this book. We now also have an audio book uh, of over 20 actors reading from the book. Some of them read themselves because uh, Roger Orr was known by civilians and famous people. So Stephen Fry, for example, reads himself. He also reads Gore Vidal and the Picasso biographer John Richardson, um, Dame Edith Edna. Wally Shawn reads himself. Wally's wife, the stupendous novelist Deborah Eisenberg, reads Toni Morrison. Um, Griffin Dunn reads himself and his father Dominic Dunn. Billy Lord, Carrie Fisher's daughter, reads herself and her mother, the voice of Carrie Fisher. Um, so it, 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 it's a, it was very complex and difficult uh, to cover 80 years. Um, I have, there's five books, each one covers 15 years. So you're, you're exploring cultural events, seismic shifts in culture, um, so many things. Plus Roger Orr is biracial. So he prefigured um, a lot of, uh, of these seismic events that I'm talking about and decides late in life to transition to female. So, uh, you know, what sounds kind of parodic and over overstated or overblown in, in that description, actually, um, I think, uh, vanishes as you become better acquainted with, uh, the, the triumphs and, and dismal failures, uh, of Roger Orr. On the other hand, as difficult as this book was to write, that it was an oral history made it a lot easier because it eliminated the connective tissue that is present in all novels. Um, someone going to their car, someone thinking in their car, someone getting out of their car. What is the weather like? What is that person wearing, etc.? All I had in these 400 voices was when they were first introduced, it would say Meryl Streep, actress, or there would be the name of a character and it would say Roger Orr's sister. And then it's just simply the chorus of, of the human voice, uh, which is a language that I feel very fluent in and very comfortable with. So that allowed me to, um, to erase any of the hesitations and, um, and barriers that are present in the writing of, uh, of the traditional novel. Yeah, it's one of the masterful things you do in this book is the way that you construct this uh, whole narrative without having an authorial voice over the top of it. I just think it works so well. Thank you. One of the things about that, I think, as well, is that you're still in there. Like, you pop up occasionally. You know, you're obviously listed on the front as the person who compiled all of these, mm -hmm. I guess, interviews. And you're kind of there in the margins, but you've pretty much disappeared yourself off the page, haven't you? Yeah. Um, you know, I had written a book some years ago called The Empty Chair. And The Empty Chair is quite similar to Roar, except there are only two voices, two monologues. The premise, uh, the fictional premise of The Empty Chair is that I traveled around the country uh, over a long period of time, maybe a decade, collecting stories from people about the most extreme or seminal events in their lives, which usually involve love affairs or death. And I found during my travels and recordings that two people were um, in, in inextricably connected 
two people that didn't know each other. And I decided to to write this book rather than an anthology of voices of people describing the uh, the the kind of events that I just described. It it was um, just simply two long monologues, and occasionally I would be interviewing them. They would use my name. They would say Bruce. So I you I did that very very sparsely in um, in Roar. But one of the interesting things that happened when I finished the book is I really did feel my own disappearance, and I almost um, in this dream felt that I had nothing to do with this, and I felt in a kind of authorial ego. Uh, intervene, you know. I, I know that um, the marketing people, you know, who often come up with with nonsensical strategies did not want me to write compiled and edited by Bruce Wagner. They wanted it to say by Bruce Wagner. And I, I said, well, why? They said, we don't want to confuse people. Well, you know, I wanted to confuse people. And this idea um, is so antithetical, the idea of writing compiled and edited by when you, you've written a novel. They weren't, they weren't able to get around that. But my publisher, Tony Lyons, um, who is fearless, said, no, absolutely, let's keep compiled and edited by. So I, I, I was able to skirt the usual... Um, horrors of, of uh, most lockstep publishing houses that want to give you a book cover with the color that year that they apprehend is selling books. Just madness, madness. We also wanted this book to resemble a, a very serious and hefty biography, um, something that would be appropriate for Saul Bellow or, um, or or Margaret Atwood, any serious writer where there was a definitive biography or oral history written about. So ergo the decalage pages, the matte cover, the matte finish on the cover, the embossed letters, um, the end pages, which are a reproduction of uh, a Winslow Homer painting, which is featured prominently in the book. So um, that these were all things that, that we did to enhance this idea that uh, the book had gravitas. Mm. Yes, and with some of the celebrities you include, you don't miss anyone out, but you've got Beverly D'Angelo, Alan Ginsberg, Andy Warhol, Francis Bacon, Barry Humphreys, Caitlin Jenner, Susan Sontag, Woody Allen, uh, as you said, like 400 people in there. How much fun did you have writing these little pieces, um, and how did you choose what people to include? Well, you know, when you're when you're immersed in a project, at least for me, of this this depth, this kind of ambitiousness, you don't have time to do a lot of thinking on your own. So things are thought uh, through without you. You know, and I, you know, it always sounds pretentious, but um, so much of this book, I didn't censor myself. I got out of the way, and that it was compiled and edited by me helped because I think 
uh, the biggest stumbling block for any author is to get out of the way. Um, you're holding on to things. You're, you're, um, you're second, third, and fourth guessing so many things. In this case, if something occurred to me and um, made sense on its face, I would let it stand. You know, so I didn't do a lot of thinking. Um, I was um, really uh, just entered the zone and let the zone do the thinking for me. One of the most amazing parts of the book for me was when Roar is making a film about Gregory Hemingway and Anthony Hopkins plays Ernest Hemingway. Do you want to tell us a bit more about Gregory Hemingway? Hemingway because I never knew he existed up until this point. Yeah. Well, Gregory Hemingway was um, Ernest Hemingway's um, favorite son. Um, Ernest Hemingway felt that uh, with whatever pride Hemingway and his vast narcissism could muster toward uh, one of his offspring, that he was the most talented, he was the best shot, he was the best writer. And in fact, he did later write a memoir about his father that was critically acclaimed and quite, quite lovely. Uh, um, he was also, like his father, um, bipolar, like his father had had shock treatment. He became a medical doctor, um, and he was a, a drug addict, and he transitioned late in life. He died in a woman's prison in Florida um, with one breast, one female breast, because the, the other one had become infected and, and I think had to have uh, been removed. Very few people know this, this, um, this story. And one of the interesting things about my book is um, the responses. For example, there's a long section uh, that talks about Fred McMurray being a hophead, you know, a heroin addict. And people would say to me, I had no idea Frederick McMurray was a heroin addict. And I said, he, he wasn't, you know, this is something I invented. And then people would say, that is hilarious and amazing. This fictional character that you created that was Ernest Hemingway's son, transgender, drug addicted, etc. Well, of course, that's true. So this is part of the confusion of, of the real and, and the dream, you know. Um, but I, 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 toward the end, I questioned, you know, the book is, has, I think, over 200 footnotes. And many of those footnotes <coughs> are quotes, um, the, the sources of certain quotes in the book. And many of the footnotes are, uh, those sources are imaginary. I, I give you the name of the book, the year of publication, who published that book, and of course that book does not exist. So if, if you Google so many things in the in the novel, you you simply won't find them because they they're not real. Um, but toward the end, even I became confused when we were doing the audio book. Someone said to me, um, "I googled this voice that I'm doing." Um, uh, it's in your book, it says that they're a well-known person and I couldn't find them. And then I would look at the name and in my head, I, I would know all about this quote, well-known person. Then I would realize, no, this person is fictional, you know? So it's, it's a miasma, you know, it's a confounding of the real and the unreal.
Yeah. One of my other favorite things in this book, and I think this comes up a lot in books that I really enjoy, is where you have a writer writing a fictional book within another book. And of course, Raw, towards the end, he does end up writing a novel, which I would kind of love to read in a way. Yeah. You know, that novel was a, a novel that I began. In, in Roar, he, he always had aspirations to be a novelist. So he writes um, a novel called The Jungle Book. And The Jungle Book, um, many years ago, there was a book written by a child soldier in Sierra Leone. Um, its author, uh, Ishmael Bea, became a kind of celebrity in, in American culture talk show visits, etc. Very charming, uh, smart young man who had been a mercenary and then be, been rehabilitated um, and by UN forces. And in, in the Jungle Book, this book that Roger Orr writes, uh, the, the Ishmael Bia character, um, in order to help his parents, uh, a white couple who had adopted him, um, his mother is, is quite ill and he needs to raise money to help her with her treatment. He decides to impersonate a child, uh, a, a child mercenary and, uh, and begins to travel the United States, lecturing at school libraries and other events, collecting money. Um, but it's a complete fabrication. So that book was called The Jungle Book, and it was a book I started. And it was a book that um, I, I used to tell people it was the book of my life, and it slowly became the book of my death. It, 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 I think I'd written a thousand pages of this book, and I couldn't go on. Um, I was impaired during a lot of that time. I was um, addicted to opiates and, and, and that kind of thing. And I wound up gutting that book and looting it for 10 other novels that I wrote. So finally, that book is written in this imaginary oral history and, um, and is dismissed by critics until Toni Morrison um, writes a, a rave review of it uh, on the cover of the New York um, Times Review of Books. So that's, that was the genesis of that. So in a lot of ways, <laughs> Roar is pseudo-autobiographical, but it incorporates, of course, so many uh, of my own experiences and impressions. Very cool. In your previous project, The Marvel Universe, you had trouble publishing the book because of sensitivity readers. Mm. Uh, did Raw have any of those same problems? Let me put it this way. Um, yeah, I my last book before Raw was called The Marvel Universe, and I had a, a contract with a publisher and the book was canceled when I, I turned it in. They actually didn't have the, the, the balls to cancel my contract. They just simply said that if they publish this book, uh, only about 30 pages, you know, of a 500-page book were publishable. And I felt uh, for the publisher because he was a huge fan of my work. He knew exactly what he was getting into by rapturously um, signing a contract with me. And by the time I talked to him, it sounded to me, my perception, that he'd been beaten down by sensitivity readers, uh, body positivity readers, 
gender readers, race readers. And my books are all about outsiders. And I think the most offensive thing about this is, um, is this idea that, that I had, I had no right to, to write about outsiders. I consider myself an outsider and all of my books bar none are about outsiders, people that do not belong, do not feel they belong, whether by, by color, by, um, sexual preference, um, by very being, do not feel integrated into the culture and never will feel that way. So that was the most offensive uh, uh, thing about uh, all that he had to say and share. But I felt for him. And I put the book on the internet. You can read it uh, for free. It's in the public domain. It's the only one of my books that will never be out of print, Ben. Um, and it, turning, once I, I put it on, uh, on it's brucewagner.la. Once I put it on that website, it was available within a week on demand from a publisher in Las Vegas that specializes in um, in public domain books. Uh, that's never happened to me in my life. Uh, a, a small publishing house here in Los Angeles started by the great writer Sam Wasson and his partner Brandon. They formed a company called Felix Farmer and published 500 copies of Marvel Universe, sold it out of book soup, so it was full circle, because that's where Force Majeure began. Fan, a fan wrote a book, a coffee table a graphic book of the Marvel Universe that I think is on the uh, on Amazon for like $1,000 or $1,500, something like that. So that was rather remarkable for me. When I, um, I didn't want to, to put another book out uh, on the internet. So for this book, my 13th book, um, I was connected with an East Coast publisher, a very big house. He loved the idea, fully understood it. And I, I think he was somewhat embarrassed because ultimately um, he felt that he, it was a slam dunk. Um, because even the people at his publishing house were fans of mine and they said it was problematic. Now that word we know, that Stalinist word, um, was also used for the, the Marvel universe. They said the language was problematic. Now, of course, what was problematic about, um, Roar is that he's biracial and transgender and I am an old cisgender white male, ergo. Uh, cannot be writing about something like that. That was when my agent, Andrew Wiley, the great Andrew Wiley, put me in touch with Tony Lyons at Arcade. And Tony is utterly fearless. Um, Tony does not uh, care uh, about um, the uh, how the pendulum is swinging. He doesn't watch the pendulum. He, he just respects and honors writers and artists and does not engage in censorship of any kind. So the answer uh, to your question is a bit roundabout, but uh, I did not have any difficulty. But had I not found that needle in the, in the putrid haystack that is now American publishing, uh, this book would, would never have seen the light of day, nor would any book of mine to come. Well, speaking of that, what are you working on next? I'm actually working on... A, a book 
of Sufi or Zen stories, contemporary. Uh, and another book I'm I'm working on is called The Met Ball, which is um, a very savage oral history of the famed uh, Anna Wintour's famed Met Ball, and which will be a lot closer to, to Terry Southern than it is to um, Roger Orr uh, or Roar, which is uh, will look far more traditional compared to the Met Ball. So those are the two things that are preoccupying me now. Do you want to tell me about some of your gateway books? What were some of the books that opened the doors of literature for you when you were younger? <clears throat> yeah. I think the biggest influence me <coughs> on me, <clears throat> well, I would. Uh, it's, it's twofold. I was reading when I was quite young, and I had mentioned Bret Hart and O. Henry and uh, Saki, and the short story collections were the, the ones that I had access to. Um, in terms of my uh, where I was, you know, a, a 10, 11, 12-year-old boy, and uh, and then Ray Bradbury. These are the, the, the steps one gradually takes. As my, my tastes got a little more sophisticated, I was absolutely obsessed with uh, Jean Genet and um, um, Raymond Radiguet, you know, the, the French somehow possessed me, maybe just because I was a pretentious young boy, I don't know. But the real breakthrough for me came around um, 15 years old, was Henry Miller. Henry Miller blew the doors open for me. Um, Henry Miller wrote in a conversational way. Um, you know, I was uh, someone that felt that um, Truman Capote, the the, the so-called lapidary prose of, of Truman Capote uh, was the ultimate for me, you know, uh, or Henry James. Uh, one day I would scale the heights of, um, of his books. And Miller just absolutely um, detonated all of that. And I was just thinking about it the other day. Um, I... My walk to school from where I lived, I passed a little boutique called Hokey. And Hokey was the wife of Henry Miller at that time. She had a little boutique, and I recognized it because I knew everything about Henry Miller. But also there was a, a portrait of him in the window, and I went in and spoke to her. I actually met Henry Miller when I was very young and completely choked wept, had nothing to say, dismissed me. Um, so Miller cracked everything open and introduced me, the great teacher he was, to many, many writers. Uh, probably the first time I ever, I'd heard of Rambeau, um, writers like um, Blaise Sandrars, um, a lot of the Russians, um, uh, Celine, you know, so Miller cracked everything open for me. And then uh, Hubert Selby Jr. made a huge impression on me, not Last Exit to Brooklyn, but a book called The Room. Selby was another one that I met. His name was in the phone book, and a close friend and I were obsessed with him. We, we had to be 14 years old, and we couldn't believe that there was a, a Hubert Selby Jr. in the phone book. And he lived... Um, in West Hollywood, near a bookstore called the Bodhi Tree, which is no longer there, we knocked on his door. He invited us in. 
you know, these are the, these remarkable, uh, events in, in, um, the, the young life of a devotee, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah. And then, then the, the, there were so many books that have, have devastated me, uh, in my life. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I returned to, uh, over and over Rudyard Kipling's book, Kim, you know, um, because of its, the nostalgia of its storybook qualities and also its, its, um, its mixture with the spiritual, you know, um, the, the books of, of, uh, Janae are still remarkable to me. Uh, Gogol, Turgenev, there, there's just so many that, um, that possessed me and that I, I, I carry with me, uh, to this day. Uh, Dickens, I think was, is the, the giant for me. Um, Dickens was almost as revel Dickens was almost as revelatory for me as, as Miller was. Um, because I had these prefixed notions of Dickens, stodgy, um, perhaps the top of his game, but the game was rigged, you know. Um, and then I saw no, uh, and I saw the genius of, of Dickens, and it so overwhelmed me that to this day I haven't read all of Dickens. It's too much for me, you know. Uh, Bleak House, um, but... but Bleak House is one of these light, it's a lighthouse, you know, rather than a bleak house. It's, um, it, it, it destroys with its power, you know. So, uh, I love that Dickens also was serialized his books and they were all a certain length because that's the length they needed to be, uh, when he released them on a weekly basis, you know, I, so, um, I really, my, my marriage and obsession is with language. I'm not, I still mispronounce words because I, I'm, I've never heard them. I didn't go to college. And, um, so my friends make fun of me when I do that, you know, and yet, uh, I am, I have such an intimate, um, fluency with, with the English language, um, that uh which is it inborn you know what books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to this year no i um when you're writing a book which i seem to be doing all the time you know you 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 just can't you know you you, you can't uh you know I, i'm leaving i'm leaving out so many um Candide for me was absolutely huge. Rabelais, absolutely huge. And, and, and Rabelais might have been first mentioned to me by, by Miller. Um, but I'm, I just, um, I don't have time or inclination. I think there's a, a quote by Norman Mailer saying that when you're working uh, in your garage, on your car and it's dis disassembled and you're you're tinkering with the engine you you don't want to look up to see a ferrari roll roar by you know what i mean <laughs> so I, I avoid doing that um 
I would say, you know, it's interesting because um, George Saunders' book, Lincoln and the Bardo, is part of my book, Roar, in that late in the book, Roger Orr directs a version of Lincoln and the Bardo. Lincoln and the Bardo is an oral history. Um, it has antecedents that it honors. But um, I thought that book was extraordinary, and I was never really able to um, access George Saunders' uh, short stories. This was his first novel. So I read it with um, some trepidation many years ago. I don't know why I was cynical about it or why I even bothered to read it. Maybe because Bardo was in the title, which I knew as a, uh, uh, a Tibetan Buddhist term, meaning a kind of in-between. Something about it piqued my interest, and, and it was extraordinary. Um, and so I honored that book by, by putting it within my own. Um, but it, in general, I read fiction. There's a new book out called Cause Unknown by um, Jeffrey Dowd, which is about the um, raft of um, sudden death, what, what the pharmaceutical companies or the medical industry calls sudden adult death syndrome. And um, the book ties much of that in non-judgmentally to uh, vaccinations, et cetera. Uh, it's interesting to me. It's, um, it's presented uh, in a graphic way, photographs of headlines of hundreds of athletes, young, healthy, that are no longer with us. So things like that capture my interest. Um, there was a book some years ago, which was the transcripts of the black box transcripts um, from um, airplanes uh, before they they crashed and that's that book was astonishing to me i think it was later made into a play um because the the dialogue as in svetlana alexevich's um books is every day and has the tragic poetic reverberation of um of the everyday so I, it, it's usually something nonfiction now that captures my attention because I don't want my needle to get s stuck in a groove of something that's ineffable and that, that has a beauty that I, I, I will never approach. We'll take a quick break here on Man the Zero. We're speaking with Bruce Wagner. This episode is sponsored by the all-new Sensitivity Edition of George Bataille's Story of the Eye. Here's a sneak peek. Story of the Eye by George Bataille. Coming soon on Audible. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Bruce's Desert Island Book. It's it's too hard for me, you know. I, I recently sold my all of my books because it was too much for me. Mm. I think I sold six thousand books. Mm. So now, uh, maybe maybe a book called The Conference of the Birds, you know, which is uh, a book of of Sufi parables in a sense. It's um, it's timeless and 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 staggeringly beautiful, you know. Um, 
So I'll go with Conference of the Birds. You know, you can't, the idea once you start uh, bringing too many books to a desert island, you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Just the one, let, let them all be represented in the one. Perfect. All right. Well, I will let you go. But before I let you go, do you want to tell us where we can go and buy your brilliant new book, Raw, and where we can go and read your other works? Yeah, everything you can get on Amazon, um, all of my books with synopses. The thing I would really urge people to do if if they prefer is the audiobook. There's never been anything like it. It's totally unique. Um, Ed Begley, um, Beverly D'Angelo, Kelly Lynch, Dana Delaney. Uh, it, it's just, it reads like a theater piece. I think it, it might be 20, 20 hours or 22 hours. It, it's a long, beautiful tapestry of, of the work. So that one I would encourage. And, and then there's that website, brucewagner.la, which LA is Laos, Laos, the country, but I love that they have a suffix and it's LA. So it's brucewagner.la and and that will also tell you uh, all of my books there's no links you just have to do that yourself because i i did not want to monetize in any way a, a website this was created mostly for the uh, um, so that i could get the word uh, out there and uh, on the marvel universe and the, the whole uh, manuscript is there for anyone to read and do anything with it that they like Brilliant. Bruce, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I loved Roar, and I think everyone should go out and read it. It's fantastic. And I wish you a brilliant rest of your day in LA. Thank you. And uh, thank you for having me. And really was, was a delight. Thanks once again to Bruce Wagner. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondTheZeroPod at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by heading over to Patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.